crime rate in the United States rises 400%. The once great city of New York becomes the one maximum security prison for the entire country. All bridges and waterways are mined. The United States police force, like an army, is encamped around the island. There are no guards inside the prison, only prisoners and the worlds they have made. The rules are simple. Once you go in, you don't come out. Welcome to Now Playing's review of Escape from New York. Hey, you Snake Pliskin, ain't you? I thought you were dead. A Podbean backer review chosen by Sean Ray. So we go with Pliskin? He's all we've got. Hosted by Arnie. What'd you expect? I don't know, he just looks so retro. Kind of 20th century. Stuart. Something's going down, we need him. And Jacob. My God, they're real. This podcast contains detailed plot spoilers and harsh language. When I get back, I'm gonna kill you. Listener discretion is advised. Prepare to broadcast worldwide. Worldwide! Today, we are discussing Escape from New York, starring Kurt Russell, Lee Van Cleef, Ernest Borgnine, Donald Pleasance, Isaac Hayes, Harry Dean Stanton, and Adrian Barbeau, directed by John Carpenter. This is the Now Playing Coast, proudly wearing the I Heart NY t-shirt, Arnie. And Stuart, not a podcaster. I'm an asshole. This is Jacob. You can be both, Jacob, and you might be. <laughs> I don't think you can't be both, actually, but welcome again to John Carpenter. I think this is our ninth John Carpenter movie that we've covered. In our unofficial John Carpenter retrospective. Yeah. <laughs> the We'll get to them all before we die or he dies, one or the other. I hope we don't. There's a lot that I don't want to see. I could still be in for Starman. I'm thinking about what else is left that I'd want to do. Starman might be it. Dark Star? I've never seen it. Oof. Memoirs of an Invisible Man, I remember being not exactly what I expected and not so bad. And I know our listeners just demand in the mouth of badness. And I haven't seen that one. That seems to be like, the, you don't go past They Live, right? Like normally it's like, get to the 90s and we're done with John Carpenter. But that does seem to be the one that I hear some people say, oh, find that one. So yeah, okay, maybe we could do that one eventually. But why are we doing Escape from New York? Well, this is a patron pick that we decided to do on the main feed because who we've got on the line is Sean Ray joining us again. He has pledged to pick Escape from New York, but... We also have somebody on this call who actually thinks Escape from L.A. is better. Heresy. And so we decided we're going to do like a deathmatch type thing and do both as a retrospective series on the main feed. So, Sean, thank you for joining us. Jacob, you're up. <laughs> okay. Yeah. No, look, Escape from L.A., that's the first one I saw. I think because L.A. comes before New York when you're alphabetizing them. So I think that's like the one I saw when I went to the rental store and checked out. But about 10, 11 years ago, it's on the record. I could have deleted it. I could have stuck my tail between my legs in shame and, and, and deleted it. But I left it on Facebook. Someone could dig it up. 
I left just some thoughts on Escape from New York and L.A. because these are movies I have watched over the years, you know, a lot of times when they're just on TV. And then one day, one Saturday, I sat down, I watched both of them back to back. And I said, look, th these are great cult films. There's no denying that. And I admit that it, this is probably blasphemy, but I think I enjoyed L.A. a little bit more than New York, even though it's essentially just a remake and it's got some sketchy CGI. This is all stuff for next week, though. But yeah, I went on there and people uh, did a whole lot of gatekeeping about Snake Plissken and told me I was wrong. And that's cool. I almost put Escape from L.A. in the underrated book as well. So we'll see. I'm always open to changing my mind. It, when I rewatch that film and, and I watch this one, I know I had a, a whole new experience watching New York. But no, these are both films that I really enjoyed. And yeah, I liked L.A. a little bit more. So sue me. Oh, my. Okay. That's an opinion to have for sure. Um, I'm going to I'm gonna go ahead and say I like New York far better. I have only seen L.A. once, so I, I will just give my thoughts on the Facebook page or Twitter whenever I watch it next week when y'all do that show. But, yeah, I, I'm a much bigger fan of Escape from New York than L.A. John Carpenter, you know, I just I love when you guys cover a director's filmography. You know, Christopher Nolan, Quentin Tarantino, David Lynch. And even when it's on an actual series, something like James Cameron, I hear that y'all are fans of those filmmakers. And, yeah, of course, John Carpenter, probably my biggest influences as terms of style you know he's the first filmmaker that i saw his films that i'm like oh yeah there's like a singular voice here that you know is in charge of everything now that's not just because he also composes his own music and probably edits the film too and writes the script no it, it just he has total mastery of his vision it's a little rough at times for sure but at the same time you know it just there's a reason why it's john carpenter's escape from new york john carpenter's halloween and, and so forth so why did you pick specifically escape from new york this time compared to to some of those other films we mentioned well i think that it's just because i saw what was left of the carpenter series and, uh <laughs> you know it's basically escape from new york and uh starman and dark stars what about ghost of mars come on you mean the ripoff that of his own film assault in precinct 13 on mars yeah it's also an unofficial escape from film we'll talk about it next week oh uh, yay LA is not the worst one objectively because there is always escape from there is always Vampire of Mars which was supposed to be an escape film. Oh, the ward. I mean, we could keep going. It's not the worst for sure. But yeah, you know, I, Carpenter, I was doing some research earlier and he said that this movie was inspired by two things. Death Wish. He really loved a big fan of that. And he read a novel, a science fiction novel, Planet of No Return, about a man who, I mean, I haven't read it yet. I'm not going to do a books and nachos on it, but about a man who has to save a planet from robots and re-civilize a world of savages. He just kind of really liked that kind of plot. And when he cast Kurt Russell, now it's, people might forget where he was in his career at this time. Kurt Russell's a Disney star. Yeah, he's the computer that wore tennis shoes. Yes, exactly, exactly. And I, I had a, this is a big movie with my dad. I, I watched it with the first time with him and he, you know, talking about it, he's like, yeah, we went to the movie, you know, excited about John Carpenter. We loved Halloween and the fog, but a lot of us were like, Kurt Russell, he's not a badass. Why is he in this movie? And But by the time they, you know, spoilers for him, by the time they ended the film, they're all walking out saying they loved Kurt Russell and, you know, loved him in the thing and all that stuff that followed. You know, Sean, you talk about the influences that Carpenter have and Death Wish Definitely one of them, like, they were looking at Bronson for a little bit for this one. I see it, and yet this is so much a star-making role for Kurt Russell. I can't imagine anyone else in this part. Yeah, if, well, Tommy Lee Jones was also considered for a little bit, but yeah, they thought Bronson was just a little too old for this role. And because Russell and Carpenter got along so well on filming that TV movie, Elvis, like, he's like, let's bring this guy in, even though, yeah, he was kind of seen as a Disney kid at the time. 
Has anyone seen that? Kurt Russell as Elvis Presley? That seems like that should work. It sounds amazing. It does. Yeah. I've not, John Carpenter directing a TV movie about Elvis is a weird idea. It's certainly not how I like to think of John Carpenter. And I will just put it out there. I saw Escape from New York too soon. I loved Halloween from a very early age and the fog scared the crap out of me. And I just assumed this would be a horror movie. When I saw it, I was seeing it very close to it. I remember, I think I fell in love with the poster. You know, I hadn't seen Planet of the Apes. This was the movie that trashed the Statue of Liberty for me. Yeah, they lie to you, but it's a cool poster. (laughs) I think that anchored me. I think it was like, wow, this is going to be a movie about the Statue of Liberty collapsed and all of that. And then when I saw it, I just remember feeling like, Oh, the poster's better. Like, I'm like, oh, I, I, it seemed underfunded and it seemed really underexposed. And I just felt like it wasn't a horror movie like I thought John Carpenter made. So I just kind of forgot about this movie. And I don't know that I've seen it much or at all since the early 80s. Wow, and I thought I was coming in as the newbie here because I've seen this movie once and it was in the mid-90s at the behest of a friend of mine who was like, oh my God, you've never seen Escape from New York. You need to see Escape from New York. And this was probably a year or two before Escape from L.A. came out. And I went out and rented it at his very strong recommendation. I'm like, well, it's starring the guy from Tango and Cash. Overboard. (laughs) Captain Ron. So how bad can it be? (laughs) Captain Ron. I mean, those were the films I knew him from. I didn't know anyone knew Captain Ron. What an awful film. (laughs) It was. And I can't say I felt much better about Escape from New York when I saw it. I mean, I'm trying to remember that far back my memories, but I remember thinking the cheesy Atari 2600 computer graphics. Not computer graphics. We can talk about it. (laughs) The poor lighting, the rote plot. And the thing I loved about it was the music. And I did have a John Carpenter CD where it was was called Halloween and the best of John Carpenter. I love the main theme from this, and I'd listen to it in my car pretty regularly. I listened to that CD a lot, but that was my only positive memory. But it's been so long, and my way of analyzing films have changed a lot. So I was actually really anxious to come back. Agreed. And I couldn't remember, like, was it a hit or not? Because it always feels like John Carpenter movies are underdogs. Like, there's always a B-movie status to almost all of them, except for Halloween. But I think... In a very competitive movie summary, it held its own. Yeah, it definitely made money. It had a budget of six and a half million and made 20, 25 million. So up against Raiders of the Lost Ark and For Your Eyes Only and Superman 2. That's not bad. I mean, in the thick of summer. This doesn't feel like a summer movie to me. No, but when would you put this out? (laughs) This is like September. February, maybe? You know, something dark and cold. February is where you put the dog shit. I mean, by and large, even still, even though you every so often get a Deadpool or something. But this one definitely kind of like the thing. It just feels incongruous for the early 80s. And I think in many ways, Carpenter was ahead of his time. Right. And it got discovered on cable and VHS viewing. And again, that video box. Who wouldn't want to see a movie that has that poster? I mean, it's just completely seductive to think about New York, which, again, very famously in the 80s, was going through some terrible times. All the stories coming out of there 
it was still Death Wish throughout that entire decade. And so you could actually imagine. It's not so far a concept that you couldn't imagine them just saying, all right, we're going to throw up a wall and turn this entire place into a prison because everyone here is a criminal. It's an interesting concept. I mean, yes, we've reviewed several late 70s, early 80s New York films that do consider it a cesspool. The ones that come to mind are Taxi Driver and Maniac and things like that. But yet, it still was Wall Street. They still had pretty recently put up the World Trade Center, the Twin Towers there. And so it's hard to think that that soon people were still thinking about throwing it away and thinking that the drugs and the gangs and everything would really overtake the businesses. Well, and one thing with, you could hear it over on Books and Nachos, where Jason and I were were talking about the novelization of the book and a bunch of comics that came out based on Snake Plissken. Yeah, Books and Nachos is back, and you guys have put out three or four episodes already. Yeah, we're going to have six total, I think. A lot of Snake Plissken over on the feed there. So if this isn't enough, New York and L.A., you want to do more traveling, there's Siberia, Florida, even Little China. It gets weird. (laughs) But one of the things that really comes clear in the novelization and, you know, Carpenter started writing this in 74 with Watergate and just like seeing this disillusionment about what America was with, you know, this president having to resign and you get a whole lot more, this Cold War feel in the book. All this stuff, the world, Russia, China, the US, they've all resorted to chemical warfare because they don't want to drop the nukes because that's just going to kill everyone. So they're all just dropping gas everywhere and people are slowly going crazy from that. So it really did kind of have almost the paranoid Cold War vibe vibe in that novelization that I don't think you're going to quite get here. Maybe that doesn't quite fit into 1981. Yeah, certainly not E.T., but I'm glad about it now. I mean, I've certainly come to love this whole genre. And Arnie, those movies you mentioned, all of them, Green Arrows, Cruising, Warriors is a personal favorite. Yeah, if any movie that wants to demonize the streets of the Big Apple and send us into some kind of dark quest in the dank alleys of Manhattan, I want to go. It's always, even Judgment Night. I mean, I even kind of like that one. It's just a feeling I have. I just like experiencing a city at night that's a thriller. And so, yes, if Carpenter wants to take us there to New York City in 1981, let's go, Arnie. Give him the plot. We can find out what happens when you escape from New York. In the future, all the way to 1997. Criminal activity in the United States has risen so high the entire island of Manhattan has been walled off and turned into a prison. Inside are no guards, only prisoners, all of whom are in for life. It's into this cesspool that the American president, played by Donald Pleasance, lands. Air Force One was hijacked while the president was on the way to a peace summit. The president escaped in a pod, but landed in Manhattan and was captured by a crime boss known as the Duke, played by Isaac Shut Your Mouth Hayes. The Duke plans a massive jailbreak by going over the booby-trapped Queensboro Bridge, using the president as a human shield. When troops try to rescue the president, Duke threatens to kill him, and the clock is ticking on the president's rescue as the president has to be at the peace summit in 24 hours. Handcuffed to the president is a briefcase with an audio cassette, not a CD like you'd actually have in 1997, but an audio cassette that contains secrets for nuclear power. That's when the idea comes to send in a single man, Snake Plissken, played by Kurt Russell. Snake is ex-Special Forces, who was being sent to Manhattan anyway for a myriad of crimes. Two explosives are put in Snake's neck that will go off in 22 hours. He must return with the president or die. But if he succeeds, he'll be pardoned for all of his crimes. 
In Manhattan, Snake finds an old comrade, Brain, played by Harry Dean Stanton. Brain works for the Duke, making gasoline, so Snake forces Brain to take him to the Duke, where Snake is captured and forced to fight in a gladiator match. Snake wins and escapes with the President and the President's cassette. The President gets over the wall first and returns with a machine gun, viciously killing the Duke. Snake, now on the other side of the wall, has the bomb in his neck neutralized, but when the President shows no care for Brain and others who died during his rescue, Snake switches cassettes, and the President goes on live TV and is embarrassed when he plays the tape and old-timey music comes out instead of the nuclear recipe. And we see Snake destroying the real cassette as he walks off into the eternal night and credits roll. And as credits open, well, you don't get to see what originally happened. There is a cut scene of the original opening of this film. I don't know if you guys had a chance to see that. on. It's readily available on YouTube, about eight or nine minutes long. And it's going to show you Snake's caper at the Federal Reserve and how he got caught and, and set him up as a prisoner. All that got cut and all this Jamie Lee Curtis, I think she's uncredited here, voiceover giving you this huge data dump. This was all thrown in because test audience didn't understand the movie. Like people outside of New York didn't realize Manhattan was an island, and so they had to add all this educational stuff in here because people had no idea what was going on in the movie from the original cut. Maps. We gotta have maps here. and They're cool maps. I like the lo-fi quality of this setup here. I, I do notice an overlap. I do see a lot of what she shares being conveyed in some of the early scenes. I don't know that you need it, but maybe you could have just spliced Snake's failed heist and gone straight into the idea that some people are trying to escape from Manhattan and get gunned down by a chopper. But I kind of like this opening. I think it sets a nice mood. And yeah, Jamie Lee Curtis back with John Carpenter. Always a good thing. I didn't realize it was her. And I was really trying to analyze this opening data dump. And while I do kind of like the graphics and the history lesson, is it stuff that could have been done through dialogue throughout the movie? Yeah, but I think I like the way it sets the stage here. I like that it just is very bleak. And I go with it. This is a B-movie, sci-fi adjacent, you know, action film. High concept where you, crazy idea, we're going to turn New York into a prison. Yeah, just give me that data dump and then let's get in the story. You know, if this was a big Hollywood production, you could probably artfully get all that exposition in there. But no, just give it to me at the beginning. We only got six and a half million dollars and let's get on with the story. Yeah, it's just plausible enough. What I'm curious about is, is Carpenter going to play this for laughs or is this going to be played like The Purge? Like, is it more of a thriller kind of scenario? That's what I'm curious about as I approach the piece again. It doesn't seem quite so far-fetched if you think about the Botany Bay and the way the UK just sent all of their prisoners to Australia. The biggest leap is that we take New York out of play with all of its real estate. Which, you know, even back then, nobody had any idea how high those values would become. But again, I mentioned the World Trade Center and Empire State Building. But sending all the prisoners to just an island, given prison overcrowding, it doesn't seem ridiculous. And again, it's a comment about New York itself. Like, they're just... Forget it. Just cut it off. Like, it can't be saved. It is a limb that needs to be amputated. It's Again, it could be played for laughs. And yet, if you knew New York from movies of that time or lived there, I think you might agree. It's just a worthwhile strategy. Yeah, and we'll see an escape attempt early on. Arnie, you, you read this great cast list. Like, watching it this time, I realized this is a great B-movie cast list. Like, just everyone you can imagine being in here. Except Tom Atkins. You didn't say his name, but he's going to show up. He, he does, I don't think he even speaks in this film, but it's 
it's always fun to see him in the background as a guard. Yeah, I couldn't list absolutely everybody. And then even in the plot summary, I mean, I, I love seeing Tom Atkins in anything other than Halloween 3, so... <laughs> especially Halloween 3. <laughs> yeah, maybe I ought to rethink that one. Again, I was so harsh on him, and I don't think I was wrong. He's Just rewatch it and don't think of Halloween. Just, <laughs> just think of some crappy horror movie called Season of the Witch. It's great. Maybe not great, but maybe it's fun. It is a fun time, and that's what makes Tom Atkins somebody who, when he does pop up, I enjoy. I think his role here is slightly smaller than that in Lethal Weapon, but... <laughs> Now that I'm older, I actually know the city of New York. I could actually identify things about the skyline of Manhattan. It was a surprise to find out much of this movie was actually filmed in St. Louis. They didn't get the locations. No, St. Louis, I guess this whole like block had just burned down. So it just looked great for the film. And they were able to get access to the National Guard so they could have real helicopters instead of miniature ones for some of the scenes. And this bridge that you'll see, like this is all St. Louis. And then, you know, of course, they did some stuff in L.A. and the to make it look like this big prison type thing. So LA, St. Louis, New York. They did film some stuff in New York, but yeah, three locations, most of it, St. Louis. Well, the Statue of Liberty's here. That had to be on location. Yes. I had to look this up when I saw in the end credits, St. Louis, because, I mean, I have gone to St. Louis so many times. I live really close to it. Do you know the story of this burned out neighborhood? I didn't know the story of the burned out neighborhood. I found a YouTube video that did a then and now, though, and I'm like, oh, yeah, I've been there. Oh, yeah, I've been there. And I didn't recognize any of it in Escape from New York because, A, 30 years have passed and they've fixed roads or torn down buildings, and B, this movie is dark as hell. (laughs) But in the end credits, what I couldn't find, and I'm asking any listener if you can tell me, one of the places they thank is P.T.'s in Centerville. Now, Centerville is on the Illinois side of the border, and P.T.'s is a particularly gross strip club. Oh, no. None of this got mentioned on the commentary track. (laughs) Why would you thank a strip club? I kept thinking, was it a shooting location? I mean... I mean, it's a weird strip club that's a pit, or did they just hang out there a lot? Yeah, and there can be a lot of reasons to appreciate all that St. Louis has to offer. One person we're not crediting, though, that I saw in the special effects department that's giving us some of this cool mat work, this is an early James Cameron movie. Oh, yeah. People always mention that with Escape from New York. Yeah, one of James Cameron's first, yeah, where he did mat paintings. I had no idea. I didn't realize that. And I love matte paintings. I know it's old-fashioned, and I know computers do better and photorealism, blah, blah, blah. But there is just nothing better sometimes than just seeing this cool painting. Like, yes, it's not photorealistic, but it sets a mood. And when we get this opening shot where the camera is craning up over this 50-foot wall, and we see that skyline that's a matte painting, it's I'm into the vibe. I really like what I'm feeling. Watching this, you know, with those now playing goggles, as we so often say, I'm paying attention just to how can they stretch this budget out? Again, they said six and a half million dollars, which they figured meant 360,000 for visual effects. That doesn't seem like a whole lot of money. So there's a lot of neat tricks. And they talked about how they use the Hitchcock trick where you pan and you go into a black area and that's when you could transfer the film. So you could go from L.A., pan into just a dark area and then come out in Missouri and make it and it look like New York. I do want to compliment them. They did a lot with the meager budget that they had. You know, I really like the shot of the helicopter flying into New York. That one, I mean, rising over the wall and seeing the map painting is one thing, but seeing a wall 
seeing New York at an angle and a helicopter flying into it. There are some really nice visuals here. You know, John Carpenter often isn't appreciated for his cinematic eye because he often is working on a very low budget. But I think here there are certain shots before Pliskin gets to New York that are really good. Oh, I'll always compliment Carpenter's visual eye in the early days. Again, those later films I'm not sure about. But yeah, I always think that there's a distinctive look to his films and that he takes the low budgets and uses them. I mean, I think to his advantage, same way that Tarantino movies look musty and, you know, Pulp Fiction-y. Like, that's what he has going on here. I don't know. There's nothing charming about the two guys in the oversized swimming pool pretending they're trying to cross the Hudson. Come on, that's the Sepulveda Am base, and I see them filming movies there all the time. <laughs> it's more than a swimming pool. And of course, the joke is they're asked to turn around in 10 seconds or they'll be shot. I think they comply, but they're going to get shot anyway. They like, just shoot them anyway. Yeah, that tells you <laughs> what these police are all about. And again, in that novelization, they talk about these police. They were all in this war with Russia, got gassed, went crazy. So the president decided to make them into the United States police force, just getting into that real deep commentary, criticizing the government that Carpenter loves. But here it's just the United States police force. And we see Lee Van Cleef as Hauk. Yeah, the movie's populated. I mean, I know this now because I've researched Carpenter's influences, but it really is populated by stars of the Western. And I'm so glad that we have covered the Man With No Name trilogy so that I have an association with Lee Von Cleef. He's not in this movie very much, but his presence looms large if you know the Spaghetti Western. Yeah, you don't forget him. <laughs> That's who the bald guy is? Okay. Yes! He was in two of those Clint Eastwood movies we reviewed. You know, I... Watching this guy, I'm like, I know him from somewhere. You're the fan of the series, Jacob. So I didn't look him up, but... Angel eyes, come on. Yeah, now that you've said it, I can't unsee it. It, it is weird seeing him with that earring in. That, like, I don't picture Lee Van Cleef with a pierced ear, but perhaps I was just for his character. I think I might normally associate him as the good. If this is the good and the bad and the ugly, you'd think, oh, he's the good. But, I, you know, having watched the police done what they did... And yeah, seeing Kurt Russell strut in here, those titles are nebulous, always changing, right? We do have a good, a bad, and the ugly, and we can argue about who is what. But Isaac Hayes, Kurt Russell, Levon Cleef, there are three point of view characters. I just figure Kurt Russell's snake is good, bad, and ugly. <laughs> And so we need an inciting incident. I mean, it could just be a movie about prison, but I, I like the idea that we've got to rescue, you know, a MacGuffin. And this MacGuffin is the president of the United States. Yeah, and I love the way they reveal it. It's, it's kind of a slow burn. You know, they see on their screen, oh, there's this jet code David 14. What what does that mean? And like, eventually you find out, oh, it's Air Force One. It's, it's kind of this fun reveal that it's the president's plane that's been hijacked. And Donald Pleasance, you know, he's English. He normally reads his English and anything that he's in, but he looks a lot like Ed Koch, who was the mayor of New York at that time. He was a Democrat, but he ran on a Nixonian platform of, it was really about law and order. Like, that's why he got the job, was he looked tougher than your average Democrat. So I think that maybe that's a thought here that they're working with. Yeah, Carpenter, I, I think he just took him because, you know, they worked with Halloween together, but he did mention that, 
oh, Donald Pleasance had this whole idea, the way he came up with, I don't know, whatever kind of accent he's doing. He had this whole idea of, like, why this seemingly British man would be the president. Like, Carpenter didn't go into it, though. He didn't reveal it. Maybe it wasn't a very interesting story, but Pleasance had a whole idea behind the character. So can you guys help me understand the general things about the president? I mean, I'm confused with the plot. He is headed to a peace summit. Yeah, the Hartford Summit with Russia and China, who we've been battling in war. Soviet Union and China. And he is taking them a cassette with nuclear power plant plans as a gift. I'll tell you what it says in the novelization because it's a little clearer. And they, yeah, I was really paying attention to see how they'd explain it here. He has a cassette tape that has the formula that's going to announce to the world that we've developed a type of fusion. And again, in the book, this is important because now we could drop bombs without nuclear fallout and stop the chemical warfare. So that's supposed to say, hey, we're in power, China and the Soviet Union, you have to bow down to us and give up. I don't know why it's an audio cassette. It's not even like a data audio cassette. It's just a recording. You could have that on a piece of paper. You could just memorize it. I don't understand why you need it on a tape. I have to believe if it's read by the president, it would be, in fact, written on a piece of paper that he's reading. Yeah, and I don't know why you want to tell enemies how to make this cool thing. Like, that doesn't make a lot of sense. But you got to remember, you said 1974, the year of the Watergate tapes. Just tapes in general were seen as this kind of empirical evidence of corruption. You know, the tapes, you know, get the tapes, show the tapes, expose the tapes, the 18-minute gap on the Nixon tapes. It doesn't matter whether you really understand it or not. Just holding up any audio tape comes with the caveat that you're dealing in corruption at this point, and that this is something that could blow everyone's mind and break a case like the Watergate tapes. And that's why I thought it was a peace offering, because yes, why would you announce the formula if you're planning on using it as a weapon? I thought he was doing this to broker an end to the war. I thought we were supposed to like this president. No, in a Carpenter film, you never like the president. But I can understand why you might, again, I think coming in fresh, not having that perspective, not thinking about spaghetti westerns, you might think the good guys are going to be the president and the law enforcement, and then all these criminals are, are, that's the dangerous element you need to rescue him from. And it's kind of cool here that we have, I don't know who she really is, but this terrorist has somehow taken Air Force One. And, I mean, spooky coincidence, but yeah, 20 years before 9-11, crashing it in a building right next to the World Trade Center. Yeah, they'll land a plane on the World Trade Center in this film, but they crash into another building. First letdown of the film, not seeing any plane crash, not seeing any explosion. We cut to a radar, and I think we're seeing the plane's trajectory through a building, but we're actually seeing just the president's escape pod's trajectory, and it lands. We see it looks like somebody's having a cookout. I mean, that's the amount of flame that the wreckage of the airplane (laughs) provides. If you have any money at all, you show the plane collide, don't you? Yeah, they don't have any money, though. (laughs) Yeah, I think you've answered your own question. They're doing what they can on the budget they have. In my mind, this has the same vibe as the first Terminator film. It's like, oh, okay, they can imply this cool future, but it's got to be done in inference. We can't really show too much action ever. And I just figure you'd take a miniature airplane and put it in a miniature building and slow-mo shot, have a big explosion. That would be a real way to kick this off with a bang. And it feels like coitus interruptus that we don't get that explosion. 
Maybe, but who cares about the rest of Air Force One? We care about this pod, this president. And actually, the sly joke of this movie is nobody even really cares about saving the president. They just need this briefcase. And since he's handcuffed to it, he's important for that reason. Yeah, and again, no computer animation here. This wireframe where you see the pod land, all just hand animated. Yeah, I just assume, oh yeah, computer graphics could do that at this time. But no, they had lo-fi solutions. Barely, barely they could. (laughs) And this is where we get to see, I guess, our first look of New York. Hauk's going to take some of the police force in there. Their plan is just to get the president out themselves. Yeah, there's no reason to immediately go with the crazy idea that (laughs) one crazy convict that we don't like is somehow going to be coerced into doing our will in 24 hours. Yeah, let's just try and negotiate. There's no negotiating with Romero, though. (laughs) Did did you recognize this actor, Frank Doubleday? Oh, no. no. He is the gangster that shoots the girl with the ice cream cone in Assault on Precinct 13. That same actor. Also the father of Portia Doubleday. I don't know if you watched Mr. Robot or that awful Fantasy Island movie. Yeah. There's also a Cronenberg in this film. One of the scientists later on that puts the capsules in Snake. So uh, Carpenter, I guess, you know, nods to his horror buddies. And kind of on the cutting edge because, I mean, who was David Cronenberg at this point? That's what I was wondering because I'm like, this seems very early to be into Cronenberg. Yeah, definitely. I mean, Romero, I mean, Living Dead... Dawn of the Dead, they were bonafide classics, but yeah. Yeah, I mean, this was, what, same year as Scanners? 81? Right. And Scanners, for my money, is not one of Cronenberg's better films. You keep saying that, but it's where most Cronenberg fans start, I think. Go watch The Brood, it's great. (laughs) I do like The Brood. But yeah, the police aren't able to take the island, and we see a guy with a creepy laugh and the president's finger. And you know it's the president's finger because he kept the ring on it. (laughs) But the president has a briefcase handcuffed. I don't know why he didn't just take the whole hand. You got to think if something's handcuffed to the president, that might be pretty valuable too. But it seems like his captors don't even think that far. Yeah, I don't think they're too worried about that briefcase. You don't even have to cut off the hand. Those would be really easy to open, just like with a knife or a gun. Yeah, we don't know who's got the president. They're criminals. It doesn't really matter who, right? Like, uh uh-oh, he is a prisoner of some really nefarious types that have no qualms of taking, supposedly, this country's great leader and chopping off his finger. So it sends the signal that the only way to fight bad is with ugly. And so let's get to the anti-hero that just happened to be rolling off the bus, going to New York for crimes that I guess you said that there's in the opening that I didn't see he was doing a bank heist yeah robbing the Federal Reserve like billions of dollars Federal Reserve ah, that's ambitious that's I think why he got caught (laughs) yeah and he's also that's why he's the best to pick for this and I was really getting a Clint Eastwood vibe off of this presence right from the man with no name, the way he he talks in that voice and he barely talks at all. Yeah, I think that's the obvious reference here. It, he's not just an ex-criminal. I mean, they talk about him. Former Special Forces, Two Purple Hearts. He fought in Leningrad and Siberia. Like, this is a war-torn hero as well. Yeah, and that's sending the signal that we are deeply enmeshed in some kind of World War Three with the Soviet Union, that there are battles going on and that this Hartford conference, I didn't see it as a peace offering. I saw it as another Hiroshima where we're saying, you know, this is what we got. And if you don't stand down, you're going to feel the might of our new bomb. 
But again, why would they reveal all of that? I just, I can't figure that out. I don't know why it's on tape, Artie. This is something I just got to give the movie. It doesn't make sense. And what is with the time limit that they tell Snake? It's like, in 24 hours, it doesn't matter if we get the president back or not. Because, I mean, at that point, we'll just promote the vice president and what the president was doing no longer matters. Yeah, because... Russia and the Soviet Union are going to leave in that time. And so there's no hope for peace. We're going to go back to war. So there, there's, again, you, you got to really buy into that this tape is going to make a big difference in this world. Because, yeah, if you think about this, it's not the cleanest logic. It's thin and it doesn't matter. It's a B movie. It has one foot already in satire and comedy. If it were fully committed to, like, you have to believe this as a thriller, yeah, that strains a lot of credibility. But given the fact that some of this is just outrageous kind of laugh-out-loud humor, then, okay, that's fine. Yeah, there's a big important meeting. It ends in 24 hours. And again, the president, life is not important. What's important is we got to show them what's on this tape. And if they don't see it, then who knows what the next battlefront is going to be. I take it to mean that missiles will be flying. And so this is a way of winning the war. You know, I feel this is really poorly given information is what I'll say. It is, Arnie. I don't think any of us are arguing that this is really clean storytelling. It's clean enough. If you don't ask too much of it, it sounds to me like, Arnie, you're really burrowing deep. I would just say, gently raise your head and don't worry about figuring out the minutia because the filmmakers did. Yeah, the plot is we got to save the president from prison New York. Yes, I get that much, but it would be nice if the movie would explain and sell me on the why instead of me just kind of treating this as a midnight B-movie where I'm just going to enjoy the action. But that's what this is. Yeah, I think what you're saying is I want this remade. <laughs> I want it remade and really calibrated. He might like L.A. more. I might not be the only one. Exactly. That's like, it's. I want Terminator 2. I don't want the Terminator. I want to see this with more money and more thought progression and really detail and flesh out and do anything that you ever thought about to tell us about this world. Sure, I want that too. But it's not the movie that we have. And I'm cool with going with this vibe. Terminator 1, greater than Escape from New York. Just got to put that out there. Terminator 1 did hold its water. Yeah, I won't disagree with that. Yeah, but what I'm appreciating with this film is where they're covering up their lack of budget. Like this great room that... Hulk is in when he's coming up with this plan to recruit Snake. It's just like this dark room, like this black wall with just these neon colored lights behind him. I don't know if that's the transit system in New York or what, but I think it just looks great. And again, I don't know what sense this room makes, but I appreciate the set design. Yeah, again, I think the visuals are really good, even though they're cruddy. I mean, if that makes sense, I think. Yeah, I, I get what you're saying. You can have a, a low grade quality and still be aesthetic. Some low budget post-apocalyptic movies from the 80s just look like crap. This is one that doesn't. And so what's interesting is that Snake Plissken is not political. One would think that he would have great opinions about saving the world. You know, he was a war hero after all, that he would want to do it for country and for his fellow man. I mean, come on. He was born on the 4th of July. <laughs> He's that Tom Cruise character. He went and fought and he got disillusioned. Tune into Books and Nachos when we talk about the novelization, we get into why. But yes, he comes back this bitter soldier that doesn't believe in his country anymore. Very on the nose for if you're writing this in the 70s. Yeah, the Vietnam vet is there. And so I think that it's transplanting the politics part and parcel into this scenario, and it works well. I think that audiences in 1981 wouldn't ask a lot of questions because it's mirroring the way that they felt. So what is going to force him to do it? A full pardon. He doesn't have to go serve his time, which is life. 
inside Manhattan. I, I do love, if you listen to just the background chatter, like as they're processing these prisoners, you can, you have two hours to decide. You can be cremated. You can just kill yourself instead of living this life sentence in New York. <laughs> and I'd have to think about it, honestly. I mean, as cool as I want to go there as a tourist, this New York is very creepy, and I don't think I would last one day. Better to serve in hell than to rule in heaven, right? I would take my chances in New York. Maybe you'd be a big hit. I don't know. You, you need a gimmick. That's, that's one thing that's pretty clear here. At least Snake has the eye patch, which I'm assuming the book... It reveals how he lost his eye. What I do love in the book is his eye or his non-existent eye is really a mood ring for the story. Like, you always know what Snake is feeling depending on how much pain his eye is pulsing through his body. <laughs> that's fun. How did he lose it? I want to know. He got some of that poisonous gas in it during the Battle of Leningrad, and it just destroyed his eye. Chemical weapon. Yep. Okay. Yeah, I mean, it just sends the signal. Eye patches always do that. We think of pirates. We think of, at the very least, anti-heroes, if not villains. It's quite a thing to take a Disney star and make him look this way. I'm of the age where I always knew Kurt Russell as an action star, but I'm imagining audiences in 1981 were probably shocked by this physical transformation. And I think Russell is really good at selling it. Was Russell famous for his Disney stuff? I mean, I know he did it, but to say audiences were shocked would mean they have a preconceived notion of this guy. I would think pretty much he'd just be an unknown. I mean, I don't know how many tuned into the computer that wore tennis shoes, but if anyone did know who he was, they knew him from Disney. Or the Elvis movie. I, I think more Disney than Elvis. <laughs> it's not unlike a Zac Efron or, you know, just whenever one of those types tries to go dark. You want Zac Efron in your Escape from New York remake? Is that what you're saying? I think we have it here is what I'm saying. And it works. It takes. It's actually convincing. Again, I take it for granted that Kurt Russell is a cool badass. But yeah, what a great way of giving this kind of thin scenario a lot of gravitas. The way he comes in here and gets coerced, really. The full pardon, plus he's going to die if he doesn't do it. They inject bombs in his neck and they're going to explode in 24 hours. Not even 24 hours. That's what I love. They're like, you have 24 hours. They put the bracelet on him. So you have this timer, which is a great gimmick. You always know what the stakes are based on the time. They only give him 23 hours. They've come up with the artificial ticking clock, which is why I was really trying to drill down into why the president had to be out at a certain time, because that's going to drive the intensity of the action the whole time. Would it be helpful to have... Any scenes at the Hartford sit down with a vice president and to learn all of those details. Would that be something you'd want to cut away to? My feeling is, nah, leave all of that stuff out. And my feeling is even, yeah, leave out the heist, whatever Kurt Russell did to get to New York. It's not really important. This movie is all about just being trapped inside the walls of Manhattan. I have the fix that I would love. Robocop. Instead of having Jamie Lee Curtis at the beginning doing voiceover, make her a news anchor. She can data dump stuff about New York, and she can data dump about the president in a better way. And even have, like, pictures of the Soviet Union premiere and the Chinese leader. Just, you know, stock images. Call Getty. I don't, you don't need actors. <laughs> but something to set up what is going on in a better way. I will agree with you, Stuart, that keeping the focus, so maybe you could do those news 
cutaways like you're talking about, Arnie, but keeping the focus on Snake as this mysterious anti-hero is the best way to go. That we don't know what his crime was because it's it's not very exciting, actually. You get to see some little robots roaming around, but it's not a very exciting opening action scene. You probably are imagining something much better in your head, and that always works for this kind of character. Like, leave things to the imagination when he talks about Leningrad, like all these little lore and myths that get dropped about him. Let, let it bubble up in your head and imagine it there because it's going to be better than, I think, anything they could, especially on this budget. Again, this budget doesn't have the money to really expand. I'm with you. I'm ready to get on that hang glider or whatever this thing is. I kind of like it as a highly aerodynamic plane <laughs> type glider. Yeah, it's a real thing. They bought this and then they, they're like, oh, we'll just sell it when we're done using it and we'll get our money back. It took them two years to sell it to someone. <laughs> well, I imagine it goes for a lot of money now that it's a prop from a famous movie but yeah <laughs> but yeah i think you have to have another plane lift you up and then they like kind of detach you and then yeah you just kind of glide it i think it's very similar to a hang glider but i do love again with having no money i love the neon backlight behind snake as he's flying this like just that green kind of glowing through his hair yeah so i'm getting kind of spaghetti western but at the same time and we talked about this with Leone, it also kind of feels like a Bond movie. Like, he's got all these cool gadgets, and it's a really good setup. Can we all agree, like, this is the best thing about this movie, is the world that they've created and the setup of what he's about to face. What I'm imagining he's going to fight is actually better than what I'm going to see him face. Yeah, I am so into this film as they're just building things up before we get to New York. I'll actually disagree that it's the best thing. I'll say it's the second best thing. The best thing is the character that Russell creates. I mean, he doesn't talk a lot. It is a riff on what Glenn Eastwood did, but... He is captivating. He became an icon. If you had anybody but this actor giving this performance in this movie, we wouldn't be talking about it today. I really like Russell in it, and I agree. He gives credence where another actor, I can think of other, yeah, Tommy Lee Jones could have worked. I mean, I definitely think there are other actors that could have done this. But if you got the wrong B-movie actor, then yeah, it's curtains. Yeah, and I think Russell was really into this. He really wanted to do something with this character, and you could tell. And as he's flying into New York, we get what looks like... Arnie, did you think this was a computerized wireframe? Do you know how they did this wireframe of New York that's glowing on his screen? I thought it was Atari 2600. I mean, we had nope. some games back then. <laughs> yeah, no, that way out of their budget. They built a miniature New York, just miniatures, and then put reflective tape around the edges and then shined a light on it and filmed it that way. Yeah, James Cameron, you got to give him props. Like, that is genius. And it's so convincing. <laughs> Literally, give him props. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it looks so much like, yeah, I just took it for granted that it must be Atari 2600 graphics. But no, that's practical effects. That is very cool. A little good meta knowledge there. I do like him getting in and the way he is landing on top of the World Trade Center. People can't see up that high. And so he just walks across the roof and we see... It is not at all like it was. We see a lot of graffiti and... Yeah, so here's my question, just to set this up now, That now that we're in New York. We talked about this for those that joined us on the Hot Mike event and also on your guys' podcast when we did Jason Takes Manhattan. That comes with certain expectations. Like if I put in Beverly Hills Cop, I want some kind of commentary going on. What's this African-American Detroit cop doing in this white, rich Beverly Hills neighborhood? Like I don't want that just to be a title. Like you put a, a city... In the name of a movie, I have certain expectations. Escape from New York, 
I want this to be some kind of commentary on New York. And and that's what I'm going to look for. And I'm going to get a lot of graffiti. I get it. New York's dirty. But is that enough? Well, you get a Broadway show. I mean, one of the first places he goes, there's some kind of vaudeville number happening here. But I wish it felt more like Broadway. I did like that is the Fox Theater in St. Louis. I have seen so many acts there. I've seen... Phantom of the Opera. I've seen Leonard Cohen in one of his final concerts. It's a theater I know well. It is not actually Radio City Music Hall. Yeah, but they do a good job of making it look like a place you'd be frightened to go into. Yeah, all these men and drag. Yes. <laughs> Almost clockwork orange quality to the every dank alley and aisle. Something debaucherous is going on in the shadows. And yeah, he's got this tracker. It's this cool device that leads him to believe he's very close to finding the president. And it turns out the Riskoff has been passed on. The presidential pod is empty. He has no leads. He has no idea where to go to next. Yeah, there is one. One person who meets him in that music review it will get a line that is said often throughout the film, I thought you were dead, cabbie. Yeah, Ernest Bordine, Wild Bunch and other westerns. Yep. So this is where they meet, but yeah, they, Snake goes on his way and it's just some crazy dude that has that bracelet. I think they take some risk here. When we see Snake just walking around this place and like there's a woman being assaulted by multiple men and he's just like kind of looks and then moves on. It definitely does give it a different vibe than your normal action hero film. And I do think that is a comment on New York. I mean, again, looking at some of those other movies we've reviewed in it, go back to Death Wish, sexual assault in the Big Apple. It was just a stereotype of that city. And that people would overlook like, oh, I don't want to get involved. Let me just keep watching. Walking. I mean, I think that can be a mentality when you live with that many people all around you all the time. So Snake is no hero. He is definitely someone that is doing it for his own selfish reasons. So what's he going to do? Yeah, I do love you. You talk about he finds that pod. President's not there. The tracker was on some other crazy guy. I do love that he just sits down to think. Like there is something great about a an action hero just getting frustrated and just having to sit down. You never see him catch their breath. I, I love that little moment in this film. Is chock full of nuts a New York thing? I don't know what that is. I don't know. It's a coffee house. Again, I have associations with New York, and yes, they can be nuts <laughs> in a metaphorical sense, but they make a big point of him stopping into this to hide out from a gang of cannibals that is coming out like chud from the sewers. They talk about the crazies who live in the sewers. And it, again, don't you wish this was just a little bit more warriors? Like, yes. No, a lot. Arnie, you said it. This film is so dark. I don't get to see any details on any of these gangs. Yeah, very disappointed in that regard. I mean, Stuart, when you mentioned the Warriors at the beginning of this film, I was thinking how hyper real that was. And here, they just can't afford to have that many gangs. We get Isaac Hayes, and that's about it. I don't know that this movie cost any less than the Warriors. I mean, I think that they had comparable budgets. Yeah, how expensive is a baseball jersey and some face paint? Yeah, it just has different things in its mind. I mean, the Warriors had a very clear odyssey. I mean, it was literally based on Homer's odyssey, and we were going to follow a street gang journey through actual famous New York locations. I like that always as a concept that we get this travelogue, this city tour. And here, again, because they're filming in St. Louis, maybe, and maybe they don't have the props and things to really sell actual locations, it does become kind of just dark and anonymous. It would be nice to have more iconic moments and more battles, more actual fights than we actually get. We have a woman here who comes on to Snake. She knows who he is, like so many people. She knows his reputation. She's attracted to him, but she's going to get yanked out of this picture real fast. 
Yeah, those crazies reach up. Again, this is kind of a cool image. They reach up through the floors and pull her down, and it feels like a real horror movie moment. This is where you'd want a character named Romero, right? Like, it does feel <laughs> very zombie-like. And the point is that Pliskin, in his attempts to escape, drops his communicator, and so he can no longer talk to Lee Van Cleef. And he runs back into this cab driver who, again, knows him by reputation and is happy to take him to somebody who can help him with this problem. Because everyone knows that the Duke of New York has the president. Yeah, it's very convenient that Cabby shows up and just goes, oh, yeah, I know where the president is. I'll just take you to him. You don't have to just walk around and search for him. I'd like a little more detecting. I agree. Snake doesn't have to be intelligent. I don't want him to be Sherlock Holmes, but I do feel like this movie... It walks us through the scenarios without the characters really milking all that they could out of them. Yeah, I agree. New York is big. It's the Big Apple for a reason. This movie feels small. Sometimes, yeah. I still like the vibe, though. I want it to be clear, like the zombie vibe of that. It's a moment that passes by way too quickly. I'm like, oh, let's linger. Let's have something happen here. Let's, yeah, get the baseball furies and a bat and really go to town here. And it's disappointing always that this movie calls the fight off just when things are progressing to be a thriller. I feel like Escape from New York is much more successful as a wry kind of black comedy about the Big Apple than it is an action movie or a suspense movie. And this is why in that Facebook post so long ago, I said, ah, these these are kind of just more cult films. Yeah, if you're into Bruce Willis and Die Hard or Arnold or Stallone, this is a different type of film. This is a different pace that you're not going to get those big fights. But you are going to get Harry Dean Stanton and Adrian Barbeau. I am a Harry Dean Stanton fan from... This movie probably came first, but Repo Man is where I first ran into him. Repo Man, yeah. Alien, right? Sure. I'm always happy to see him in a film. I like his performance here as Brain, and it's convenient that Snake runs into an old compatriot of his, but it gives him an ally, somebody to talk to, and somebody to work off of. And, you know, he has no leads. This gives him one. Yeah, you get this mention of something that went down in Kansas City four years ago, and that Brain ditched Snake and someone named Fresno Bob. Now, Fresno Bob did pull off that heist with Snake at the Federal Reserve in that opening scene and get shot. Oh, it's two different crimes. Okay. Yes. Yeah. They were kind of a gang, I guess, that were going around. And that happens a lot. Again, tune into Books and Nachos. Snake is always getting ditched by people who he thinks are allies. Yeah, I really want to do that now. I wish I had done that before this. Again, the desire to flesh all of this out. There's just such good material here. It's a shame that sometimes it gets short shrift. Yeah, this movie starts about... 80 pages into the novelization. And again, it's a lot of backstory. You'll read about Snake and Leningrad and how he became a Purple Heart era. Like, But yeah, you do get all these kind of details that help build this world out a little bit better. It sounds like there might almost be too much in that book. Am I right there? I think it was the perfect amount. I really enjoy the novelization. I love the way it was written. I love the extra details. I feel like I want those details. Every time you're sharing them, I'm like, oh, I wish they had found a way to put some of that in here. But anyway, the point is, it's not much of a quest. Everyone knows where the president is and Brain knows the Duke. And so really, they just got to wait around because the Duke's like driving over to like pick him up. Yeah, because Brain has a map of all the mines on one of the bridges so they could drive around them. Right. So why why it ends up being a chase back to Grand Central Station, not exactly sure. I'm also not exactly sure if you got the Duke, all these Western heroes. I'm thinking John Wayne, Isaac Hayes, Shaft. It's New York City, man. You, you got to have Shaft with those chandeliers on the car. I love it. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's pimptastic. 
I love seeing Isaac Hayes playing this crime boss. And is it stereotypical having an African-American man as the crime boss and being the only African-American in the film? Maybe, but I'll go with it. It's Isaac Hayes, though. I'll forgive it. Yeah, it looks great as an image, but like so many of these characters, I wish he had a monologue. I wish he had one scene where he really lays down what he's about, what he wants to do. He looks awesome in his little pirate drag. I don't know. Again, pirate (laughs) pimp-tastic outfit. I, I don't know what he's going for. But this is where I wish Carpenter was more like a Tarantino and could really give a voice to some of these cool ideas and images that he can pluck out and that are so cool as standalone objects to admire. Yeah, and what is the Duke's plan? Because they have a map of all the mines, but they're going to use the president because I guess the army could just shoot at them. So they're going to have the president as well, like at the front of their cavalcade to get over the wall and get out of New York. I'm thinking of Fury Road, <laughs> the way that those uh, blood transfusion people were. Yes, they strap him to the front. <laughs> yeah, like it just it sends a message, right? If the president of the United States is my hood ornament, you just get out of the way. You let it come through. <laughs> Everyone understands what that means. But again, he's miscalculated because he believes that the president is of value. But the only thing really of value is this audio tape and its value expires before they're going to do this bust. That's what they've miscalculated. They don't realize they need to be going tonight and not tomorrow. But the president is just kind of tied up in a train car right now. Yeah, we have to have a wrestling match, right? Ah. (laughs) This is what I'm talking about. New York, Escape from New York. I want more New York stuff. And sure, they got boxing matches there and wrestling matches. But if you're going to do this, and I know Carpenter doesn't have the money, but I want that at Madison Square Garden or a really dilapidated version of that after maybe it got bombed in Godzilla. If you're going to go with just a gladiator match, put it somewhere iconic in New York. I liked it as saying we'd reverted back to Roman times and human gladiator matches. I liked its idea, but in the end, I know this film came later, but I just kept thinking Thunderdome. Yep, and it does it much better. (laughs) Yeah, it's all in that name. And again, I was thinking about Kubrick Spartacus as well. Of like, I mean, it was actually about the Roman gladiator matches, but I feel like Carpenter is good enough with the camera that I'm still into these moments, but they don't have the money. They really can't wow you with these scenes. Yeah, this is not great choreography. This isn't great action. It's campy fun. I'm totally cool with that, sitting down with a B sci-fi movie and just having fun despite all its warts and flaws. Yeah, agreed. But the movie's rapidly coming to an end, too. Time is running out for Pliskin. It's daylight. Forgot that this movie does actually, with 24 hours to go, he actually does have to spend a day in Manhattan as well as a night. Both this and Escape from L.A. were almost entirely shot at night. Very few day shots. Mm -hmm. But here, if this were Spartacus, this is where he kind of gets... Some allies, right? I mean, he's got Brain, Maggie, and Cabby. Those are his allies, right? Well, they're betraying him. <laughs> they're off being like, we want to get out of here. The only reason why we even agreed to help him is because he said he had a way to get out. And so they magically deduce that somehow the glider is on top of the World Trade Center. Well, no, no, no. This was all a plan. I think Brain, yes, he sells out Snake, but I think that was his plan to get the president and then get the glider and get out of there without Snake and and use the president as some kind of leverage because it's Brain and Maggie who go in and shoot Romero and save the president. He's got a wig on for some reason, like they're dressing him up like a girl. But Pliskin knows this? No, because he's been knocked out and taken prisoner by this point. Yeah, that's my point is that Pliskin is our central character. And if these were his allies, I would... 
it'd be one thing if they had a great escape plan, but instead it feels like, no, his friends he was working for are now like doing their own thing. They would get in that glider and leave him. They would just take the president and leave Snake behind. Well, that's kind of fun. I mean, like that kind of treachery, no honor among thieves is what you want sometimes, but I just feel like Pliskin needs someone to play off of. Even the man with no name series, they had to give him another gunfighter, someone else that he could team up with and collaborate and and use to help pull off his stings. Yeah, no, I agree. I feel like a lot of this movie are set pieces. It's here's a scene in a dance hall and then chock full of nuts and then a gladiator fight. And then uh, we're going to try to get that glider on the roof. It does feel very segmented, like where it was the set pieces that were thought of before the character and, and the storytelling. And that can be done effectively. I'm not complaining about it. It just, that's how I see this film. I mean, the Warriors does that, but you see the characters change and turn on each other and create new friends and get into new circumstances. Yeah, the, the problem is we don't want Snake to change, so you have to have another character that's going to change. And that's not going to be Brain. That's not going to be Maggie. That's not going to be Cabby. Everyone is who they are in this film. Where I feel the movie's kind of failing is escalation. There's a lot of events happening, like we talked about, but... It never feels like stakes are getting higher. It's just time is getting shorter. Yes. We're worried about Snake. Yeah, his arteries opening up. And I'm wondering if maybe he couldn't collaborate with Isaac Hayes. If they couldn't figure out like, hey, maybe we can just bust out of here. But I guess he can't contemplate those things because there's only life for him if he does what the medics are expecting him to do when he crosses over that wall. He needs somebody to stop those bombs in his neck. But they could have had someone on the inside figure it out and remove them. That might have been something that would have changed the dynamic. I would have been happy if they could just made this final chase a little bit more exciting on this bridge. Yeah. Like with these mines, like I feel like if you hit a mine, that should really stop you. And it feels like they set a few off and they're able to keep going. Yeah. I'm not sure what good the map is at all. <laughs> yeah. It's like, okay, stay to the right. Now turn left. Now right. <laughs> Let's like, yeah. There's really only one lane anyway, so I don't know how you would drive anywhere else. But yeah, we lose quite a few people along the way. Adrian Barbeau, we hardly had time to spend with ye. I thought for sure, I guess because she's Carpenter's wife by this point, I thought for sure she made it to the end of the film. I didn't remember everyone going down like the Dirty Dozen. Yeah, Brain goes down, she goes down, even Cabby's gonna get it. That's the saddest death to me. Yeah, Borgnine is always kind of a fun sidekick that, I wanted someone to live. Is that wrong? I wanted... (laughs) More than Donald Pleasance, though I do love Donald Pleasance's moment as the president. You know, he's gonna get lifted to the top of this wall, and it looks like Snake's abandoned, the Duke's about to kill him, and then you have the president on top of that wall with a machine gun. A number one shooting the Duke up. <laughs> yeah, because he was tortured, forced to state these things. Yeah, no, that's it's a great moment. Oh, I'm agreeing, but we just hadn't mentioned him. But he was psychologically tortured and forced to say that the Duke was A number one. So to see him come back at the end with this kind of psychotic break, the way he's maniacally shooting up Isaac Hayes, but it's fun. Yeah, I, I think he should get the kill shot. I definitely think it's more satisfying that the president of the United States gets a machine gun (laughs) and uses the anti-hero as bait to pull this bully out and then gun him down in cold blood. That is just a delicious dark comedy stroke. (laughs) And then turn around and they've like got beauticians and all shaving him, getting him ready. They can't get him to Hartford. No, this stuff is good. I don't know how much of this Carpenter thought is satire, but yeah, you you free the president from a prison island and he's like, yeah, obviously all beat up and everything. They're just shaving him, put that makeup on, make him look good for TV. Yeah. 
It's all about the image here. And so, yeah, he's going to honor it. I mean, they do, I guess they could have been callous and just let Snake die or send him back to Manhattan or, or anything, but they deactivate the bombs. They seem to agree that he can go on his merry way. And the president offers him anything he wants. Yeah, and it is that way the president answers that question. How do you feel about those who died trying to save you? And he's like, oh, yeah, 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 yes. We appreciate their sacrifice. Like, he's so flippant about it. Again, maybe it's just confirming everything Snake already believes. He probably was never going to give him that original tape back, right? Yeah, and I mean, again, the sting of Vietnam, not only did we lose, but all the people had concluded for years, the top brass had said, you know what, there's no way that we can win this. They knew it, and yet they stayed in there, and they expanded the war. And that is the anger for the American soldier, is that you knew that I was going to fail, and you didn't care. You just set me up. This is the anger of the Vietnam vet that Pliskin is expressing when he does his switcheroo and decides that nobody is going to broadcast this important tape. I believe he would have given the tape back if the president had given a contrite answer. Yeah. If the president had proven himself to be a good person at that moment, right. he would have gotten the tape back. Otherwise, there's no point for that scene. Yeah, just as people wouldn't mind dying in Vietnam if, it, if their leaders were sending them for a noble cause, if there was going to be a victory that they saw happening, but it was not a war that was thought of in that way. So yeah, again, it is the right cynical ending for this movie that Pliskin, apolitical that he is, and I don't know what it means that this tape is not going to be broadcast. Does that mean it's World War III? World War Three is going to continue. Yeah, or escalate. Who knows what the fallout from this is? It could be pretty bad. You will if you tune into Books and Nachos. Okay, good to know. I've got to do that. Yeah, because, yeah, it, it's a real funny feeling to end on. It feels like a hollow victory for him to rip up that tape. Yeah, he did switch it with one of Cabby's American Bandstand tapes, which was a nice little joke when he goes to play that thing and it's going to be serious. And it's just that happy little music that comes out. Mm-hmm. But will we have happy little music when I ask? Jacob Stewart, do you recommend Escape from New York? Jacob. So again, Escape from New York and Escape from L.A., they're not one pie. If I like one more, it doesn't take away from the other one. They're two separate pies. I can like both of them, people. And I do like this film. I, Especially watching it this time. Again, it is always interesting coming back to a film when you're a decade more mature or just older, maybe. But you do see things differently. And as I'm watching this, I really appreciate it. Again, great B-movie cast. Like, I love everyone here. Tom Atkins, Lee Van Cleef, Donald Pleasance, Kurt Russell, everyone. It's all great. But seeing what Carpenter does with the little money he has and how good he can make it look with all those bright neon lights and that wireframe concoction they came up with and the miniatures and all the camera tricks. It's fun to watch because yes, I know this is a movie that does not have the money it needs to really carry out the vision that's in Carpenter's head, but I could still love it. Again, these are thin characters and I think I said this with Assault on Precinct 13. Very thin characters, very thin plot, a, a movie I really enjoy because they are just pulpy B-movies. So New York, I really enjoyed coming back for this visit here. And again, I think there are opportunities. Maybe do a little bit more with the gangs. We talked about the Warriors and it feels like, oh, New York's gritty and has gangs and crime. Like, can we dig a little bit deeper? Maybe dig a little bit deeper in our satire of New York. I, I would have liked that more. But still, I could give this a very strong recommend. And again, it's it's more on that culture side. But by that, I mean, it's, it's just more of an indie film. I think if you like the Man With No Name trilogy, you're going to have fun here. So solid recommend for Escape for New York. Stuart. 
Yeah, Escape from New York. I thought you were dead. I mean, that was my memory, was that you were this overrated cult film that spent too much time looking in the dark for action you never found. And the 80s had a lot of post-apocalyptic movies that didn't amount to much more than a mohawk and a middle finger to Reagan. My memory was Escape was one of those films. And so coming back, I'm delighted to find that the sensibilities are actually... A little smarter than I gave it credit for. I was not old enough to appreciate Escape from New York when I saw it as a 10-year-old. It's not Indiana Jones. You're not going to love it for an adventure film. You've got to have an opinion about the world, and it's got to be a little bit more cynical. you got to like spaghetti westerns, and I do think that it helps that we've gone back and seen some of the classic films that influenced this, as well as The Warriors and Cruising, After Hours. I do think that Carpenter is just mining a genre that I enjoy very much. The tour of hell is something that I always want to take. And pretty good job on the limited budget, but it probably wouldn't be enough without this man with no name. Kurt Russell really rescues this film by giving it the gravitas of an Eastwood. Like, he is that good in this film, and I do think that he elevates a movie that could easily kind of drift off into the darkness. Like, he puts a spotlight on what's cool about this scenario. And so, even though this is not one of my favorite Carpenter movies, it's no Halloween, it's no thing, it's subversive, it's fun, and it's undeniably cool. And I'm all in for more Snake Plissken adventures. A solid recommend. Wow. I really had to give this one some thought, because... The movie, I felt, was diverting, but I was really let down by lack of story. I just thought Snake went rambling from place to place, sometimes with Harry Dean Stanton, sometimes with Ernest Borgnine, sometimes alone, and it never really thrilled me. I think that its lack of budget and its age combined led to an underwhelming movie experience for me. I was somewhat entertained. I can't say I was engrossed. I certainly wasn't in love with what I was watching. So I really had to chew on this for a long time because it was it's right there on the edge. I really could see giving this a not recommend. I'm eking on the side of recommend because I really do like what Kurt Russell does in it. I like the character of Snake Plissken. Is he overly original? No, we've talked about it. He's doing an Eastwood here. But if you'd hired Harrison Ford, who the same summer was Indiana Jones, to do this, I don't think he would have done an Eastwood. I think he would have done a Harrison Ford. Yeah, again, imagine Charles Bronson in this role. As much as I like him in Death Wish 3, I don't see him as Snake. He's a little old. I mean, Kurt Russell brings a, like a youth, a, a sex appeal that Bronson just wouldn't have. Yeah, so I, I'm eking to weak recommend on this. I wish I liked it more because I do like John Carpenter films in general. And I do really, I mentioned it, I like the score here a lot. I wish I liked the movie here a lot. But in the end, I can say, yeah, give it a watch. But if you don't, you haven't missed the greatest thing of all time by any means. It's pretty low on my Carpenter scale. I guess I would put it this way, Arnie. I hear you're complaining that they didn't do enough with what they had. But what they had was cool, and I don't think that there was anything here I didn't like. Is there stuff here that you feel like, oh, this is not good? I couldn't think of anything that I, that I didn't think wasn't working on a low boil. 
There was nothing that hooked me in beyond Kurt Russell's performance. I didn't care if he succeeded. I didn't care about the president and his tape. I didn't care about the scenery. Okay, well, I I find the presidential tape thing, like, very compelling. Again, maybe it's my Watergate thing. I think it has to be, because there's nothing on screen that makes this clear. I mean, we had to spend 10 minutes parsing out even what the fuck it was, and that means bad screenplay. Well, we should ask. There's a fourth reviewer on this call. Let's find out what Sean thinks. Yeah, it's it's a definite recommend for me. I mean, I picked the movie. Uh, I, I, I can only think of one in the future that I picked that's going to be a brown arrow, but I guess that's still up. But, you know, I, I think that all that needs to be that I could say about why this is a recommend for me is uh, tell you a little bit behind the scenes of what Kurt Russell said in an interview once. You know, they're filming, you know, they didn't really have permits for this. They couldn't really shut down streets or anything. They didn't have permits? Yeah, they would have to, like two hours before sunrise, they'd have to clear all the garbage off the street so traffic could use it and then like at 4 p.m they'd come back and put all the garbage back on the street oh, oh yeah, yeah what a hassle, what a hassle. I, I don't know which shot it is in the movie maybe it isn't even the final film but he had to walk down a pretty long like like a block and hide behind a building for a second and then come around and when he turned that block there was a, like a, some pretty rough characters around that block like i don't know if they were gang members or what but pretty rough characters and they kind of looked at him and he you know all the full get up and everything and he <laughs> He kind of just shined his flashlight on that gun he had, which, of course, was just a prop. And those guys all of us went, hey, man, hey, easy, easy, man. We're walking. We're walking. It's okay. And then yeah. he said, uh, I, I think this character's going to work, is what he thought. He, he ran down and told John what happened, and they all like, all right. But, uh, yeah, I, I think that's pretty awesome. And, yeah, I, I just, you know, like I said, I, there's there's some filmmakers that y'all cover, whether it's a series or, you know, <laughs> one a year like Carpenter, that I just look forward to, to y'all covering. So, Sean, I got to know, I agree with you. Snake Plissken is just cool. We want him to be in a great movie movie what do you think about big trouble in little china what did you think about what kurt russell did in that movie i, I like it just because of the atmosphere but yeah the, i mean <laughs> yeah i was really shocked uh, i don't i'm not sure which host posted it on facebook but said hey snake's the coolest out of all of the kurt russell carpenter characters right and it seemed like the, the majority was going for jack burton which was kind of surprised because i would say snake mccready jack burton <laughs> i would say snake jack burton mccready i don't like the Big Trouble in Little China movie as the review bore out. But if you're looking for Fonzie-level cool, he's cooler than McCready. Yeah, I do feel like Kurt Russell was kind of cursed, right? Like, he should have had a better career. He could have done anything that Bruce Willis did. Like, he was, he had that level of cool, but for whatever reason, yeah, he always got the B movies. He never got the A-list blockbuster. Yeah, even his tombstone, like, I mean, you know, he got the better movie, but then everyone, I guess, forgot it and said, oh, yeah, that horrible Wyatt Earp movie. It's like, no, no, that's a Kevin Costner one, please. Like, Tombstone's <laughs> awesome. Yeah, Tombstone, everybody does love these days, I think. I mean, everybody yeah. says, I'm your Huckleberry. But it wasn't a hit then. And again, theres I don't think he's ever been in a, like a star vehicle that made more than $70 million. It was at Hollywood Pictures. Y'all talked about that on, uh, what, Sixth Sense, maybe? How, mm -hmm. how they were cursed to yeah, not have any hits. If it's the Sphinx, it stinks. But yeah, I do think, yeah, the one thing is sometimes you do come across a movie where there's an element that's just undeniable. And whether or not you like Escape from New York, I do think everyone likes Snake Plissken. Yeah, what shocked me was, I'm like, oh, surely there's an Escape from New York video game, right? Like, this is made for video games. I could only find one for the Commodore 64. There's an English and a German version, and they're both awful. Like, the English version are just three levels where you're Snake and you just walk through the street shooting people, and that's it. <laughs> I think it's Metal Gear Solid. 
yes, they will carry on Snake's name, but the German version is the craziest one because it's only two levels. One level are giant hands coming out of the ground. I guess like the crazies coming through the floor and you got to jump over them. Okay. <laughs> and then the last level is just Snake running down the bridge and you just got to dodge little circles that are supposed to be mines. <laughs> and that's it. Okay. I'm glad I missed that one. Yeah, I don't know how you don't get an awesome video game out of Snake Plissken and these escape concepts. This wasn't Atari. This was a computer game. Commodore 64. That is incredibly disappointing. <laughs> yes. Worse than that Death Wish 3 one, because that one at least had a cool song. And it's surprising they never went back to it. Maybe there's something with Kurt Russell and the rights, but they made a Thing video game in the 90s. You know, they went back to a lot of old movies. The Warriors, Godfather, Scarface, all these movies got video games in the 90s and 2000s. I'm surprised that on a PlayStation 2 or higher, they never went back to it. This is ripe for a open-world Grand Theft Auto-style game. Didn't Carpenter have all the rights, though? I think, I mean, maybe not, but his budgets are so low, I think maybe they have to get his permission to make the video mm. games. And I'm sure he likes money. Yeah, I, w I would <laughs> think he'd be okay with it. <laughs> but we will get one more Snake Plissken movie next week. Officially. Yeah, it'll take 15 years. I remember its release vividly. So... That'll be coming up this week. And in the meantime, this Friday, another sequel, Candyman 2. Yes, the follow-up. Can Bill Condon continue keeping Candyman at a quality level in his last theatrical release? Going to Nolans. Nolans. Uh, I mean, I like Nolans. Yeah. And yeah, I like the first movie, so I'm hopeful. So you can join us with just a donation of $10 or more to hear us review all the Candyman films. As of this recording, Jordan Peele's is still scheduled to come out in a handful of weeks, really. My birthday weekend. Yeah, don't know if it'll hold, but we hope it does. The world may not even exist when this <laughs> thing comes out. Yeah. Can I escape this world? That was the third part of the Escape Trilogy, Escape from Earth. Is it really? That was the plan. <laughs> I hope not, because I still want to hear y'all's review of Tenet coming out, hopefully. That's true. I do. <laughs> yeah. yeah, there are reasons to look forward to the future. That's one of them. And other yeah. things. I'm just saying, because uh, I'm on the show, you know, I have a yeah, family that I want to survive with, too. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's that. <laughs> I like the priorities. Now playing, reviewing Tenet. Oh, yeah, my family. <laughs> well, they're not here and y'all are, so I just, you know. And you're all part of our family. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for your support. And listeners, thank you for joining us. We will be back next week as we try to escape from L.A. And until then, God save us and watch over you all. What's it to be, Pushkin? Us or them? Shut down the third world. They lose, you win. Shut down America. You lose, they win. The more things change, the more they stay the same. So what are you going to do? Disappear. Thank you for listening to this episode of Now Playing. Thanks for not killing me, man. I owe you one. We hope you've enjoyed the show. Don't tell me you didn't enjoy this just a little bit. And we want to wish a special thank you to Sean Ray for his tremendous support of our show and for picking Escape from New York for this review. I want to thank you. Anything you want, you just name it. 
And also come back to NowPlayingPodcast.com each week for another new movie review podcast. Sir, we're still broadcasting. Good. Also at our site, you can find hundreds of other movie reviews, including Star Wars, A Nightmare on Elm Street, Independence Day, The Avengers Films, Back to the Future, Batman, Superman, The Fast and the Furious, and more. This is bigger than Cleveland. Now Playing Podcast is a show without any sponsors or ads. We rely on support from listeners like you to keep Now Playing operating. Oh yeah, a million greenbacks? I got 10 million of them in the next room. You can find a link to donate using PayPal at the bottom of our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. And a new deal for you. You help me, you live. You can donate to the show and, as our thank you, receive bonus podcasts. Over 150 bonus movie reviews are available to choose from on the Now Playing Podbean page, including Alien, Night of the Living Dead, Jurassic Park, Ghostbusters, Indiana Jones, Lord of the Rings, Psycho, Troll, and more. Well, I... I want to thank them. This nation appreciates their sacrifice. Find a full list of available bonus shows at nowplayingpodcast.com forward slash donate. What's in it for me? You can also join the Now Playing Patron campaign through our Podbean site. Patrons of $10 or more get a new exclusive movie review every month, plus even more perks, including one where you can pick a movie for our hosts to review. Find the details on our website. I guess we've got a deal. You can help us out by leaving us a five-star review on Stitcher, Podbean, iTunes, or your other podcast store of choice. I guess I go in one way or the other. Doesn't mean shit to me. You can follow Now Playing on Facebook and Twitter, where we post announcements of new episodes and where the hosts post movie mini-reviews. Links to our social media pages are available on our homepage. Bliskin, what are you doing? Playing with myself. I'm going in. Now Playing Podcast is produced by Arnie Carvalho. Okay, number one, the big man, that's who. Associate produced by Jason. Get a new president. Now Playing is edited by Arnie. You were the best we had. Now you're just like one of them. You had it all. Now Playing, credit narration by Brock. Silence is golden. You're the one making all the noise. The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Venganza Media Incorporated. I know him. Look at his face. He's lying. Right, Harold. I'm lying. Venganza Media Incorporated is not affiliated with the motion pictures reviewed or otherwise referred to herein. Is that an order from the president? Absolutely. Or let's just say it's what's best for the country. All movie clips and music included in this podcast are the intellectual property of the respective copyright holders. They are included here for the purpose of review and no infringement is intended. In the name of the workers and all the oppressed of this imperialist country have struck a fatal blow to the racist police state. Now Playing Podcast is an exclusive trademark of Vinganza Media Incorporated and may not be used without the expressed written permission of Vinganza Media Incorporated. All rights reserved. Land of the free. 
Now Playing is a Vinganza Media production, copyright 2020, and no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Vinganza Media Incorporated. I hope it was worth it, for now you are going to die. Everybody does. Any movie that wants to demonize the streets of the Big Apple and send us into some kind of dark quest in the dank alleys of Manhattan, I want to go. It's always, even Judgment Night. I mean, I even kind of like that one. <laughs> you know, that is underrated. I, I do like that one. <laughs> you like the album. Come on. That's what's great about that film. Oh, the album is great, but the movie is okay. <laughs> I haven't gone back to, to maybe we'll do it one day. I, you know... But you are going to get Harry Dean Stanton and Adrian Bardu. Barbeau. Barbeau. I always fuck her name up. <laughs> and Adrian Barbeau.